0: Welcome, everybody. This is the Progress Portland podcast, our second episode, and our first with a guest. We're very excited. This is Tim Halber.
1: I'm Kip Silverman. Our guest today is Steph Routh. Steph was recommended to me by uh, somebody I deeply respect and is just a really good human being, Julia DeGraw. When I reached out to her about this podcast and what we're trying to do, she's like, you need to go talk to Steph. So, Steph... Thank you for joining us.
2: Well, thank you for having me in that kind introduction.
1: To start this off, I guess, tell us a little bit about yourself and why you're running.
2: Well, a little bit about myself. I have I know that the podium is wide on this one, but I do have the best dog in the world. Her name is Olive, um, and she is a cattle dog, and she has big feelings about small wheels. And I think um, uh, anyone who knows me for more than five minutes knows that... Um, Olive is the best dog. So that's that's part of it. I was, uh, I grew up in Park Rose uh, neighborhood. I live in Lentz. When the new charter reforms were put into place and the districts were starting to take form, I looked at the district maps and this idea that East Portland would have its own district, that it would, on day one of the new form of government would have more representation on city council than the cumulative history of Portland City Council to date. Uh, We've had, I believe, over 60 Portland City Councilors. Two of them have lived east of 82nd Avenue. The idea of being part of that process was so overwhelmingly meaningful to me. East Portland is the home of my birth. It's also the home of my heart. The idea of showing up every day in and with and for East Portland is a galvanizing reason to have decided to run for uh, one of those seats.
0: And what do you see as specific issues to East Portland that maybe aren't being represented?
2: Sure. Well, I grew up when I was a toddler. I remember, as much as a toddler remembers, <laughs> I remember the annexation process, and that there were a lot of hopes and there were a lot of promises made. And I think that uh, that we have not seen the realization of some of those promises, and East Portland retains some of those incredible hopes and possibilities. And so... I think that there are some issues that exist in East Portland that exist throughout Portland and beyond in the region and not just Portland of our housing crisis you know the the wealth gap that has only been exacerbated through the pandemic uh, we also have a shelter shortage and um, community safety is is a big issue and everyone deserves to feel safe and safety means something different for different people. And we need to look at how are the different ways that safety, not just from violence, but from the economic, social, environmental conditions that fuel violence in the first place. And those show up differently, I believe, in East Portland than in some other areas. Uh, and, you know, it starts with the fact that there are very few sidewalks in East Portland. And, you know, so that in terms of when we look at safe routes to school and what does traffic safety mean for families, when we look at uh, the parks, you know, the East Portland is by and large pretty park poor. And you hear people craving uh, places for open spaces where people can congregate where with other neighbors where you can build that sense of belonging and explore different activities in neighborhood in community so there's a lot yeah. <laughs> there i could go off but <laughs> but i would say that those are those are a few issues that have already come up even in the couple of weeks um, that i've been uh joyful enough to be able to show up to a small community meeting and say Hey, I'm Steph Routh, and I'm running for City Council District One in East Portland.
1: We we appreciate you being here. Uh, in, in fact, in those past couple weeks, since the boundaries have been set, and which is kind of awesome, Yay, yeah, I'm found out uh, a place where I'm renting is right on the border. So I was like, "Wait, where am I exactly?" And then there was the border
2: a, of which uh,
1: two? I I think I'm um I'm at Prescott and 75th, so I'm uh-huh. just north of District, I think I'm in District 2, and District 1 is Lentz, I think, so, yeah. So, um, the interesting thing about uh, things that you're talking about, which are, are systemic endemic problems for east of, I'd argue, 39th all the way out to 178th and beyond, right, but especially east of 82nd, are that Almost all the focus has been on downtown Portland, and in just the last two weeks, our governor, Tina Kotek, has started a 48-person committee to solve downtown Portland's problems with uh, elected officials, business people, and uh, absolutely no one from the communities elsewhere around Portland. And then the latest plan that I just saw in a few days ago were, again, all downtown Portland focused, with no mention of the struggles of literally beyond Laurelhurst, essentially. I, I'm wondering your thoughts or visions on what representation looks like and being able to advocate for uh, your district, assuming you uh, gain one of the seats, and um, how you would like to see uh interaction with the people who live in your district and being able to resent, represent and not resent them uh in city council oh that's a big question yeah i Sorry. would say
2: no this is great i i think one opportunity with the new form of government i think that there are a number of opportunities with the new form of government And if we take those opportunities, I think we will get to different and better outcomes. And one of them being that we have moved, we will have removed, thank heavens, (laughs) second best time to plant a tree, removed the commission form of government, because I think we've really muddled the executive and legislative functions of of government. Um, One of the Uh, opportunity costs of that that I think we have felt has been that councillors spend the majority of their time overseeing bureaus and trying to negotiate with other councillors whose main focus are different bureaus. Moving it to a legislative function so that city councillors are looking at policy, developing policy in district with community members, is that we get to create a continuum of conversation and a more kind of virtuous cycle of a feedback loop between constituents and and the policies that show up in their daily lives that they can help guide and meaningfully influence. So the fact that each district would have not one but three counselors means that those three people ideally would be working together in collaboration to understand and then you know mold into policy with with counselors from other districts. How do we knit together better policies that lift all boats, that we achieve shared prosperity, that community safety in the deep definition that I think our communities need starts to advance and be supported? I think of that as like being able to literally show up every day and connect with community members with constituents and say you know what is on your mind what are you seeing also as possible solutions government is not going to be the hero of our story the people of portland are the heroes of our story i think that we are in a be- we will be in a better place next year to make that a a likelihood you know going back to i think collaboration is a critical piece it's going to take all of us our challenges are greater than any one or few people or 48 people honestly can bring up it will take all of us, I welcome any conversations, but at the end of the day we need to be moving forward together and we need to be able to have difficult conversations, respectful conversations, I crave the honorable opposition, I love to find people that I respect and who respect me with whom I can fight (laughs) vociferously (laughs) (laughs) And I think we need that. I think we've had a lot of Portland nice. I think what East Portland brings is East Portland kind. Like we will tell you when there is schmutz in your teeth, <laughs> because that's what a good friend does. And I think that that is one thing too. I think the earlier your earlier question, Tim, you know, what does East Portland bring? I, I think that East Portland brings brings a different flavor of kindness uh, than I think we have we have had. And I'm looking forward to all of Portland being the beneficiary of East Portland voices.
0: That brought up a couple things for me that I think are really uh, fascinating. Well, first, the idea of your definition of safety is really fascinating. One of my main issues is fear. We end up hearing in the news, hearing from the police, hearing from people that there's this great fear of people for their safety by pushing on that fear they're often stirring up an approach that's more punishment oriented rather than actually looking at you know what is what is behind this you know what is what is causing people to be homeless what is causing people to run the streets with guns? You know, what are the things that that cause those problems? And rather than talking about them in a way that's that's punishment driven and that is, that is driven by crime as an indicator and p- pushing on people's fear, because the fear is usually based on very little knowledge and statistics of what is actually going on in the street. So I think that's that's fascinating. The idea of, that's, of safety is, is a different, uh, looking at it through a different lens.
2: When I think about you know, those different kinds of emergencies that befall a specific community. The one that I think foments the most fear is a pandemic, because you're literally afraid of other humans. You know, when you go back to the beginning of 2020, Our understanding of how it's transmitted, what the impacts are on different populations is fluid and dynamic, and it's understandable. Like, we we were in a space of fear. I don't think that we have really metabolized How that is impacted and what we have to do now, what is the challenge before us in order to get past that where other humans are not something to be feared, that belonging is so important. And we see even before COVID, you know, Vivek Murthy talked about the epidemic of loneliness and let's just say the pandemic did nothing (laughs) to help us in overcoming that loneliness epidemic, that has huge impacts. And it's understandable that people feel fear. uh, And that that fear shows up in different ways. Um, I think our challenge now is to take a breath and say, you know, that recognizing like your fear is valid, it comes from It comes from a deep place. It is what you fear. It is what you feel. It is your reality. Um, how, How can we move together? How can we come back together? What do we need in this moment to, again, bring that sense of belonging that we all do belong? We're not choosing one community over another and that community safety can come from that, from having those conversations. Housing and shelter can come from that. Um, shared prosperity comes from that. But that is a difficult conversation. And when we're in our feelings, it's, it's not the easiest time <laughs> to have a reasoned conversation about, you know, sacrifices that we might need to make in the near term. And so it's tough sometimes to have compassion for people who don't agree with Your idea or my idea of what the best path forward is. I think recognizing the our shared humanity of what we have all been through and how that has shown up in different ways and how that's impacting the policy conversations we can have and on what timeline.
1: No, no, absolutely, and 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 I appreciate that perspective greatly. As we've seen over the last few years, I mean I've been here for 25 years, and the homelessness on house problem has been front and center of everything I've seen everywhere I've gone uh, across the city from the very first beginnings of living in Northwest Portland and just exponentially grown year to year to year. Right before the 2016 election, we had an explosion because we had unbridled growth and uh, cost of living wasn't being coordinated and, and it was always focused downtown, south waterfront, north waterfront we hit the pandemic, and we see, as you said, first of all, panic. I went, you know, I went prepper, bought solar panels, got walkie-talkies in case the cell phones went down. You know, I'm like, okay, what do you do when there's a disaster? Have water, have emergency rations. No one knew what was going to happen. As things moved out a little bit, my youngest two children and I were uh, living together, and we realized we had an extra toilet paper. So we started bagging it up because again, we weren't sure if it was transmitted from touch. Um, so we wore gloves, bagged it up, put it on the wall in front of the house we were renting and people would leave thank you notes, right? It's just, it's community helping each other in that level of kindness. And as we've seen, none of the core problems being addressed, but the problems becoming exponentially worse. The reaction we've seen, and something that you said really struck me, is that government isn't going to be the hero here, right? It's going to be the people. That's really powerful because right now what we're getting from a lot of or all of our city council quote-unquote leadership, I'm using air quotes, this is radio, you can't tell, um, uh, leadership, we need more patrols, we need more police, we're going to pay them double time and let them work overtime. And and then introducing urban alchemy, which I don't even know if you want to get into that conversation, but I've got lots of thoughts on, regardless of how many patrols you have, you don't have any systems to do anything about the people you're interacting with, whether it's throwing them in jail, which is definitely not the solution, or try to get them in a diversion program that doesn't exist, and yours waiting for housing doesn't exist. But the local government is saying, we're stepping up, we're doing something, saying that we are coming to save you from the unwashed masses and Honestly, some of my best friends are unwashed masses, so um, I take umbrage to that. But anyway, um, there, 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 isn't, there are not real solutions right now. They're, they're, they're aggressive, some would call fascistic approaches to getting people out of the way so that they can rent more downtown office space. But it doesn't solve the problem of, of livability uh, in East Portland, and most of these people are going to be displaced to Eastport East Portland, and that uh, has traditionally just become East Portland's problem. Um, so I, I really appreciate your, your view on that. Um, do you ha- what thoughts have you put into how we, uh, hopefully in, in a new l- legislature, structure, funding the resources we actually need to be able to solve some of these problems. Um, and that's a big one. I, I, will throw out there that, you know, in 2017 city of Portland had, I think a 4.1 or 4.2 billion dollar budget. Uh, our 2024 budget is over $7 billion yet. I am uh, uh, I have no idea where all that money is going. <laughs> uh,
2: I have a lot of thoughts.
0: <laughs> cool, thank you. That's why we
1: invited you. <laughs> That's
2: uh, um, Well, as uh, I have the honor of serving on the planning commission, um, and it. Uh, for four years was the Planning and Sustainability Commission, now the Planning Commission. In fact, they're just starting the conversation around a Sustainability and Climate Commission, you know, building that up because that was part of that change was, you know, we need to have two different ones <laughs> because uh, climate and planning are very closely related. Um, and also there is a lot there um, and one body cannot hold all of that. Uh, two projects that came up to mind um that I've really held up in terms of like how do we approach shelter and housing because uh, and I'll just say step back for a second we didn't get here overnight Uh, And, you know, we can we can, you know, the current council, even the last few councils, like it is no one person's fault. This has been a devolution of underfunding uh, and divestment um, for decades, you know, at the federal and state and and local levels. So I think we're, we're definitely playing catch up and we're in we're in the soup we're in the soup for housing same thing for climate we're experiencing the downstream impacts of all of the decisions that we failed to make before and that is decades so now now we're here and uh but we are here and it's like it, it doesn't have to be anyone's fault to be everyone's responsibility mm. one project that we had a couple of years ago that i was so delighted by going back to our community is the hero of these stories, uh, the expanding opportunity for affordable housing. It was a number of faith based organizations that came together and came to the Bureau of Planning and Sustainability and said, our congregations are shrinking. We have this real estate we would like to use it for the purpose of our mission of our faith, uh, which includes offering shelter and deeply affordable housing. We're not looking for a handout. We're looking for your help to cut some red tape so that we can achieve the mission and to the extent that we can help the goals, like advance the goals that we all say that we share. Mm-hmm. And that um, it was a just a meaningful and just deeply deeply, Delightful conversation about people who are just like we want to be part of this uh, of this conversation where we are housing our neighbors where we are uh, we are meeting the challenge as uh, as a team and it turns out through the pro- that process and a subsequent project which was the shelter to housing continuum project which uh, was basically expanding the toolkit of uh, of what. Where shelters can be, what shelters can uh, can be used for that is still, uh, still allows um, and actually uh, requires wraparound services mm-hmm. to ensure like people are getting what they need, that we have housing first. And also that we're creating the conditions for uh, success in moving to uh, permanent ha- uh, uh, and deeply affordable housing. And we identified, I believe, like 400 vacant lots that have the possibility, like the the next question is like, what of those could potentially, for example, be sites for safe rest villages, which have, I I want to say, I saw a recent study that with safe rest villages, it creates the conditions for about a 35 to 50% success rate to more permanent housing. And so, uh, you know, when when people have the chance to take a breath and and try to start to heal from the, you know, the traumatic experience of houselessness. So I think of, of those as things that come to mind is like, we, I think that we do have the tools, we have the bones for solutions. They require a lot of difficult, again, difficult conversations, um, but let's go get it. And we see, uh, I just got a newsletter from Cultivate Initiatives, which is based in which is East Portland. And they have a safe rest village, for example, on 122nd and Burnside. They've had in the last couple of years, I think they're still doing them, I'm hoping to go to a near term one. Well, then Eat and Greet, it's like inviting housed and hun- unhoused neighbors to just come together. And it's like, your job is to enjoy the hospitality of the space and just get to know each other and just have a conversation. So much of the the main ingredient of fear is the unknown. And, you know, when we start to know each other, uh, that conversation starts to shift. And so uh, that's not our only, like, I'm not saying like, have a conversation and then, you know, and then blue, Blue Jays will like Sorry. dangle you know, <laughs> streamers as people walk down the street. But it is it is the beginning of uh, having a different conversation.
1: Absolutely. I'll, I'll add on to that uh, just briefly. A nonprofit that I run that I'm still trying to get off the ground, which gets extra food to hungry people via volunteers on an in time basis. One of the big keys of that entire program based on Conversations with people I've had uh, over the years doing food pantries and open park service, food service, and and other folks that are involved in uh, hunger security issues, one of the key aspects of it was to have people not just bring food to shelters and other places that can accept that food, but if you know somebody living in a car or a family down the street that, you know, somebody got laid off or whatever it is, um, tents over, you know, on a vacant lot, if you feel safe, bring food there and say hello and say hey we've got food is this something that you might want and get to know those people because those conversations with your neighbors that you might not get to interact with on a everyday basis in a moment of hopefully community and kindness changes everybody's understanding of the people around you that maybe are less fortunate and it is truly a game changer and, and there's statistical proven information out there that demonstrates this. So I, I think, yeah, that's a beautiful thing to hear that people are doing. And I think one of the things early on in understanding the unhoused situation here in Portland was the need for all communities across Portland to share in the challenges, whether it's temporary shelter, uh, transitional shelter, Uh, making sure that every community has uh, services available so that everybody's not just camping out around the old post office lot because that's where the most of the services are, right? Um, it, It makes everybody in one area makes it unsustainable and they get pushed out to areas that have no services. So being able to have a shared responsibility across Portland, everybody recognizes that these are issues. Um, I'm really hopeful that this new and and relatively well-proven represented district process. I've read about it in other states and cities. Um, will open up those doors into a uh, real conversations about what can each community do and bring to the table to solve these problems, rather than pushing them in one direction or pushing these people in another direction and not really having any true solutions.
2: Mm-hmm. And what I hear, thank you for that. I think one thing I hear you saying is also, you know, meeting different needs looks different in different contexts. Absolutely. And um, and so, you know, that's why I think we, like, expanding a toolkit, sometimes you do need, you know, one tool, sometimes you need another. And that And that none of our communities, none of our communities are monolithic. Like, mm-hmm. I share a lot of genetic code with my family members and we have very different needs like if there is if there is is any group that should have the exact same needs and we live in different parts of this region and our lives look very different on a day-to-day basis and that is just universally true that we are all, it is universally true that we are all different, (laughs) that we will need different things at different, at different points and at different epochs of our lives.
0: So then how do you create consensus? I think that's always the issue for me is in understanding this and having worked in urban planning issues, people bring their passions. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm, I'm getting from your background, a lot of really interesting work in communication, bringing people together, making decision-making. Do you have theories on that? Do you see ways in the current city hall that that there can be change to create more feedback and more communication. Sure.
2: That is a gr- that is a great question. That is in some ways the question, right? There's a lot of conversations around that we've never been more polarized. I don't know if that's true, but certainly I think most of us feel like we're having very different conversations in different rooms and those folks are not talking to each other. Again, having served on the planning commission, I, I come back to this because uh, people disagree. Like, We see a lot of disagreement and and it's on a lot of pretty dense code, right? Like people want, you know, to amend, you know, to, to include slightly different language and have very strong feelings about it. And then we go back and forth. I don't know that we have experienced consensus so much as feeling that the process was fair and feeling that the because of the nature of a conversation that it was inclusive, that we got farther than we could have otherwise. And I think of one example, we were doing the Historic Resources Code Project um, a couple of years ago. And, um, you know, when questions like, when did history start? Whose history matters? Whose history has not been memorialized? What happens Um, when we are using the artifact of a building. For example, Lower Albina um, has a rich history. A lot of that history is lived in the people, is embodied in some of the, the memories of what that business district and what that residential area looked like. But the actual buildings have been razed to the ground. And so, How do we memorialize that history? And also, how do we connect that to a beautiful Black future of Portland? And so those were all conversations, not small conversations that we're having. And uh, to hear then chair, uh, uh, the chair of the Historic Landmarks Commission, because the Planning Commission and the Historic Landmarks Commission were coming together and having, and we come from very different perspectives, relationships to this conversation. To hear her say at the city council hearing that she was like, We didn't agree on everything, but we got farther than I would have thought possible. Mm. And like, y- there are some things we just really don't agree on. And also, that's okay. We don't have to agree on everything today. We have to reach a point where we have agreed on enough that it's like, We have done some good work. Let's call this good. Let's take a breath. Let's celebrate. Let's have lemonade. we'll see how how this works out and then we can come back i think that like for uh, uh, related the charter commission or the charter reform conversation last year people had very strong feelings uh and that you know you had a city councilor who's saying like vote no on this and we'll propose something different and it's like and and there were a lot of people who felt like yeah i'd like i'd like to see what that what that looks like and but uh and we've had you know over the past several months you know people like is it working like uh, i've heard the the phrase by like do we have buyers remorse but i think the like a lot of people did a lot of work mm-hmm. to get us that not I think no one was entirely thrilled with every part of it. Like, some people didn't think it went far enough. Some people, you know, felt it went way too far. And But I think that there's something kind of lovely in saying we got, I think, to where um, as far as we could get, where, you know, almost 168,000 Portlanders said yes mm-hmm. to this – did we get everything right? We don't know. But like, let's take a breath, say, look, we we made a big decision, huge decision. Let's go have some lemonade, sit back, see how it works. No, no. Lo- I do. If there is a law that was perfect in its creation and implementation, I don't know of this law. I would love to be apprised of it. But we will probably need to tinker. We'll yeah. probably need to say, actually, this, best of intentions, we tried it. It right. didn't work. Let's try something else. Let's
1: give it some time, though. Let's figure it out. Yeah. I, I'll I'll mention this because access and inclusivity is near and dear to my heart, is that one of the challenges in the very short time that I worked in City Hall was trying to figure out some of those hurdles of how do we get people involved? And I don't think City Hall has figured out any of those yet. Although, as involved as I try to be in staying caught up on issues and meetings and things happening around the city, I felt more informed and more able to participate in the process from just being an average citizen rather than a honored invited guest or something to participate in the charter reform process. I just going around the city. The I'm getting goosebumps thinking about this cuz inclusivity is just a happy space for me, but there there are posters everywhere, there are emails everywhere. It's mentioned on KGW frequently, it's talked about on on OPB frequently that there are multiple meetings happening, everybody is welcome to participate. I joined a few of the Zoom remote ones, which I thought were managed beautifully. Managing a large Zoom with a lot of people is a hard thing to do. <laughs> so lots of kudos to, to, to the commission working on it. And it was a very open, transparent, and sometimes tenuous process. But what came out of it was an honest result from those meetings that I did attend to. And I I feel like perfection, no, but the best possible outcome with a lot of community input, we have something really, really good. A handful of people i have heard talk about buyer's remorse or it's a different electorate than it was two years ago. I won't name names of people saying that. Really bother me. Um, And and the fact, the, the idea that um, we've had this form of government for hundred, yeah, hundred ten years, yeah, 110 years. Um, uh, and nothing has changed. And that we're redeveloping it to something that is modern and hopefully more equitable and inclusive, and all of a sudden we have to put a stop on it because it's too radical of a change. Blows my mind. So. I would hope that the model being used or that was used to engage uh, citizen, citizenry, that's the right word, right? I'm, uh, words are hard.
2: <laughs> or residents, you know, because we, we do residence. have a lot of folks who, who can't vote. Um, yeah, and-
1: true. Re- residents, thank you. Our, our community engagement uses the same process as some models. It was cumbersome. It took a lot of meetings. It put a lot of work on people, mostly unpaid, but it was, again, out of 25 years, the most open and transparent process I've been involved in. And I've tried to be deeply involved with all of this. So I would love to see that centered as an operating model going forward. I still get emails from the city auditor's office every Friday telling me what next Tuesday or next Wednesday and Thursday city council agenda is. I'm like, I'm glad I have three days heads up on that to go (laughs) research what you're going to talk about and decide, do I have to take the day off from work to try to get on a long list to talk for two to three minutes? And if I have opinions and I'm strongly feel strongly about, I might just get shot down in that process. That's happened to me before. So this is all of these things that we're doing to get to this point, hopefully are blueprints for how we get beyond this point when we actually have this thing in place. So um,
2: You make me think of, if I may. Yeah, please. The... No,
1: no, I want your response. I, I was waiting. What's my question in there? I'm like, you know. <laughs>
2: I mean, one thing that has come up recently and came up a little bit last year, which I I try not to take exception to specific things, but I think, I think that there are some things that need to, like, that this costs too much. And, you know, community involvement is not without cost. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, believe, uh, I believe it was Michael Jordan um, of... Office of Management and Finance, not the other Michael Jordan uh, that that said, you know, it's like good governance does come with financial cost, but that is also literally the business of governance, yes. um, and there is a reason why at the state level, our number one goal is community involvement, because the best of democracy is gathering the wisdom of the room, gathering the wisdom of, from a lot of communities, trying to wrestle with how can policy hang together in that of all of the ideas that are coming up, and then what's the best of what we have with where we're at right now? And then the the role of an auditor then is to, you know, go a couple, de- couple years down the road and say... I don't know how's it going, kids. Right. And, and, then, and they go, "Woo, you missed a spot," you know? oh. But I, I've been charmed recently by the, and I'm almost hearing a little bit of this from what you were saying, Kip. There's a phrase I've just come to love. I just heard about it for the first time, maybe a year ago, from Laura Loforti of Vanport Mosaic. Uh, the meaningful inefficiencies of civic engagement. Is democracy the most efficient way to govern? No, it is not. Tyranny is probably the most efficient
1: way to sure. govern. <laughs> if if all you're concerned with is the trains running on time. Exactly. Which still don't run on time. Right. But but the but the office that tells you they are mm-hmm. says they are. Right. Anyway, please. But no, continue. please yeah.
2: but it's but there it's the it's that meaningful again, that those the actual conversation that brings yeah. different people together where you start to uncover other things. People start to build relationships across that. Mm-hmm. You know, I think that uh, I had, I knocked over, on over a thousand doors last year for charter reform. I had mm-hmm. probably all told about 400 in-person conversations. I have never had 10, I've knocked on a lot of doors for a lot of things over the last, what, 30 years, but I have never had so many 10 to 20 minute conversations <laughs> with people on their porches one reason i just love oregon so stinking much because we really care we we still have a lot of equity issues to get to around voting and um and community involvement absolutely and also it's pretty clear or like folks in oregon care deeply about uh ensuring as many people as possible can vote mm-hmm. again with the caveat we have a lot of people to go get <laughs> right. yeah. and, and that they're, they're still baked in inequities uh, and disparities of, you know, enfranchisement on a number of levels. But uh, it's pretty exciting to be able to go to someone's door and say, Hey, what are your thoughts on our electoral form of government? And people are like, Oh, I have thoughts. <laughs> and also I have questions. And I'm like, I am here for your thoughts. I am here for your questions. <laughs> so I will say, because uh, I've heard like, could there be up to like fifty candidates running? And the answer, yeah, probably. Sure. I mean, when we when uh, Commissioner Fish tragically passed away, you know, that was that was a seat that did not have um, a, an incumbent, and that was a special. And there were what I want to say, there were over twenty. Yeah. Um, 20 mm-hmm. candidates for that one seat. Mm-hmm. We had last year in Alaska. I just keep bringing this up because I just think it's absolutely fascinating. Uh, Don Young, their congressperson, their sole congressperson in the U.S. House of Representatives for 49 years, an entire state was represented by an one individual for almost half a century Uh passes away unexpectedly. And they had just done an electoral reform for the entire state. So it was an open primary with top four moving to the general election. And then the general election was going to be ranked choice voting for the first time. They had to up that. And this is like, you know, Alaska, it is, it is r- like the rural parts of Alaska are rural, right? And um, And so voter education was already going to be A challenge, you know, how do you get out to, um, you know, your small radio transistors, hams, literally pontoon boats, literally, you know, sleds. I have lived in Alaska (laughs) that uh, and so that went up that open for primary was moved up two months. So like voter education had to happen very quickly. And then the ranked choice voting, the special general election was three months before it was it was supposed to go. So it went it went in August rather than November. And so uh, for that primary, the first time, like no one had ever really run seriously against uh, Representative Young. He, you know, was an institution. Why would you do that? No one runs against an incumbent with that much recognition. and, And that is incumbency. Like, we can talk about the equity of that, <laughs> and we should <laughs> at some point. But there were 48 candidates for that wow. one spot. Santa Claus was on the ballot. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and he's wonderful! Like, on Twitter, like, I and I know some people who have met him, and he's just a delightful human being. He is literally the mayor of the North Pole. He is very kind. He does want health care for all. Like, <laughs> he wants that, you know. Uh, he came in sixth! You know, like, we, we I would just say, like, we came very close, and then the, the person who was, I believe, third or fourth, uh, Al Gross withdrew from the general election, so... Uh, they ended up just having three, but like, we we came close to having Santa Claus on the ballot of Alaska. So, <laughs> I mean, amazing. anything could happen, yeah. Right? Yeah. And when yeah. when you have we have no incumbents, there are twelve city council spaces, and there are zero incumbents. It's so such an amazing opportunity. It will yeah. it will yeah. never happen. I mean, unless we again, you know, in however many, hopefully, hopefully a couple of decades away at least, like we've got to, go. <laughs> but we're not going to have this possibly in our exactly. lives again. Yeah. Yeah. This is a once in a lifetime shift. Yeah. So yeah, a lot could happen. It's going to be... Uh,
0: it's it's going to be it, fascinating. I mean, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> no one knows
2: what's going to happen. Yeah, yeah.
0: yeah. 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 it's very it's, a, it's very exciting and it'll be really interesting to see what happens. So how will people find out more about you?
2: Thank you. I was just I was like, uh, our campaign is Steph... The number four, eastportland.com. Uh, and you can also uh, give us a shout hello at steph4eastportland.com. We're just getting started, uh, but we'll we'll have more and it's going to be an exciting 14 months. And just, just so grateful for this opportunity and also to be your first... I feel like we filed early because we wanted to be part of the beginning of the conversation. I feel like being your first guest, it's like it, it just feels on brand for the campaign. So That's thank amazing. you. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening. This has been the Progress Portland podcast. Our theme music is The Acrobats by the Portland band Helvisha.